Lord, we could sing with all of our hearts for all of our lives and all of eternity and never exhaust the greatness of who you are. Lord, as we turn to your word and we see again, Jeremiah 10, how great you are, how, how foolish our idols are in comparison to you, Lord, I pray that you'd be present. Open our eyes, Lord, to your greatness. Cause us, Lord, to cast aside whatever idols we've latched onto in our lives. Help us to see you for who you really are. All for your honor and glory, we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Why don't you stand today, actually, as we uh, hear the scriptures read for us, Jeremiah chapter 10, uh, verses 1 to 16. Hear what the Lord says to you, O house of Israel. This is what the Lord says. Do not learn the ways of the nations or be terrified by the signs in the sky, though the nations are terrified by them. For the customs of the peoples are worthless. They cut a tree out of the forest and a craftsman shapes it with his chisel. They adorn it with the silver and gold. They fasten it with hammer and nails so it will not totter. Like a scarecrow in the melon patch, their idols cannot speak. They must be carried because they cannot walk. Do not fear them. They can do no harm, nor can they do any good. No one is like you, O Lord. You are great, and your name is mighty in power. Who should not revere you, O king of the nations? This is your due. Among all the wise men of the nations and in all their kingdoms, there is no one like you. They are all senseless and foolish. They are taught by worthless wooden idols. Hammered silver is brought from tarnish and gold from euphaz. What the craftsmen and goldsmith have made is then dressed in blue and purple, all made by skilled workers. But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God, the eternal king. When he is angry, the earth trembles. The nations cannot endure his wrath. Tell them this. These gods who did not make the heavens or the earth will perish from the earth and from under the heavens. But God made the earth by his power. He founded the world by his wisdom and stretched out the heavens by his understanding. When he thunders, the waters in the heavens roar. He makes clouds rise from the ends of the earth. He sends lightning with the rain and brings out the wind from his storehouses. Everyone is senseless and without knowledge. Every goldsmith is shamed by his idols. His images are a fraud. They have no breath in them. They are worthless, the objects of mockery. When their judgment comes, they will perish. He who is in portion of Jacob is not like these, for he is the maker of all things, including Israel, the tribe of his inheritance. The Lord Almighty is his name. Amen. This is God's word. Please be seated. Continuing in our series on the names of God, we're going to touch this morning on the name Elohim, which is the most common name for God in the Bible. Uh, but especially we want to see from this passage, this contrast that God is providing for us between himself and idols. Now we might be inclined to think that this passage is not really of much help to us. Uh, Jeremiah is a prophet in the final days of Judah. Uh, the southern kingdom of Jerusalem and the surrounding uh, tribe of Judah uh, in the final 50 years before they went into captivity. And he was preaching 
calling upon God's people to abandon their idolatry and return back to God. If you know anything, though, about his ministry, there was very, very limited success. And not only was there limited success, meaning people didn't respond to Jeremiah. God's people didn't. Generally, they didn't turn back to God. They didn't abandon their idols. And not only that, but they actually persecuted uh, Jeremiah for his message. Uh, We think our ministry is hard. Imagine if you were called like Jeremiah was to a ministry of 50 years of futile preaching and persecution. For Jeremiah, though, he understood the value of the ministry because he understood the reality of who God is. And one of the things we find in this passage is a kind of mocking of idols. Of course, he's talking here about the kind of idols that were were used back in those ancient days. And as we see here in these early verses, uh, when people would fashion their own idols, their own gods. And I think the danger is for us to assume then that this doesn't apply to us because we're not that stupid. We don't do that in our day. We don't take a piece of wood or a piece of stone and shape it, make a face in it and worship that. We're too smart for that. But if we think that way, then we're going to fail to see and hear what God has for us in this passage. So I hope you'll listen along. What we're going to do is see the contrast between the idols that God's people were worshiping and God himself. And what you'll notice is that as Jeremiah describes God and as God speaks to his people, he uses a number of different names and titles and descriptions for himself, each one helping us understand him more deeply and more clearly. So I think this passage is actually really fitting for our series Well, here's the first thing we want to see. The first contrast begins on the idol side with this, that idols are created by people. Look again in the early verses. This is what the Lord says. Do not learn the ways of the nations or be terrified by signs in the heavens. Verse 3, for the practices of the peoples are worthless. They cut a tree out of the forest and a craftsman shapes it with his chisel. There's a number of verses that uh, describe this. Look down to uh, verse 9. Hammered silver is brought from Tarshish, gold from Euphaz, and what the craftsmen and goldsmith have made is then dressed in blue and purple. Then verse 11. These gods who did not make the the heavens and the earth will perish from the earth and from under the heavens. So I've got a throat cold again, I'm sorry. I hope you'll bear with me today. So here's the first thing that we see. Idols are created by people, but as we see in verse 11, they're not the ones who created everything else. People are created by God, or you could say everything has been created by God. In fact, the tree or the stone that the idol worshipers used to craft their God was actually created by the true God. So here's the first obvious contrast between God and idols. God is the ultimate creator of all things. Now, uh, this is one of the important uh, names of God. We find it in verse 10, actually, where it says, the Lord is the true God. He is the living God. Now, the two times we see the word God there are the word Elohim. Maybe you've heard that word before. Elohim is the most common name for God in the Bible, and it's the one we find in the very first verse in the Bible. In the beginning, God, Elohim, created the heavens and the earth. 
And so often, as we trace the story of God throughout the Bible, uh, often the name Elohim reminds us that God is creator. He is the true God who made everything that we see around us. And we're going to see that emphasis here. Notice in verse 12, um, sorry, verse, yeah, verse 12, uh, but God made the earth by his power. He founded the world by his wisdom and stretched out the heavens by his understanding. So Jeremiah takes us back to that basic understanding of Elohim. He's creator. The name Elohim isn't actually really a name. It's more of a category, more of a title for who God is. He is the divine one. He is God. What's interesting about the name Elohim is that it's actually a plural word. Sometimes the word Elohim is used for God's small g, false gods. Sometimes it's used for them because it's a plural word. What's interesting, though, in the Bible is the Bible uses the, this plural word, word Elohim for God. But all around it, in every sentence where it's used, there's singular pronouns and singular verbs, speaking to the fact that the writer is referring to one person. But he used the plural form of God, perhaps because, some would say, because God is three in one. More likely, it's because God is so great and mighty and awesome that a plural word was most appropriate to use to describe him. So there is a God, Elohim, who created us, who created everything. Think back to what Adam and Eve did in the garden. God created Adam and Eve. He created the Garden of Eden. He gave them all these fruits that they could eat, a safe place where they could live. But in sinning against God, essentially, they rejected him as their God. Now, they hadn't fashioned an idol yet, but that was the next step for them because essentially what they did is reject the rule of God over them, which left them wide open and their ancestors and all through the history of the world, all of us have been so susceptible to worshiping something that is not or someone that is not Elohim. We were created by God to worship God. This is why it's so fundamental. This idea that we are worshipers is so fundamental to us. And if you don't worship God today, you don't believe in Elohim, it's not that you're not a worshiper. We could examine every one of our lives in this room and we will find out that every one of us values something or multiple things in your life as kind of ultimate. Of course, God created you with that, uh, that desire to worship. It was meant to be directed towards him, but if it's not directed towards him, it'll be directed towards something. You will be a worshiper of something. And sadly, when we reject the rule of God, what we generally do is we craft our own religion. None of us foolish enough to carve out a face on a piece of wood and bow down and worship it, but nevertheless, we have crafted our own worldview, our own ideas of what the world is about, our own ideas of what's truly valuable and meaningful for our lives. Here's the great contrast between the true God and idols. God created everything, but idols are created by people. Then we find next that idols are lifeless. And if you find some of these verses a little bit funny, they're meant to be. This is meant to be a sarcasm, a kind of mocking of these 
false gods. Look at it there in verse five. Like a scarecrow in a cucumber field. I, I don't know about this. Like, would you put a scarecrow in a cucumber patch? I'm thinking maybe in the corn patch or like who would ever steal a cucumber? And do any, are there any animals that come in and eat cucumbers? I don't know, but that's, I think it's part of the mocking, personally. Like a scarecrow in a cucumber field. Their idols cannot speak. They must be carried. They cannot walk. Do not fear them. They can do no harm. They can do no good. Notice back in verse 4, they fasten it with a hammer and nails. That just simply means when they stand it up outside their door, wherever they put it, they always fasten it down because if it gets windy, it could fall over. Or if it's in the house and the kid bumps it, it could fall over. That wouldn't be good. It's actually a story in the Old Testament where the Philistines steal from Israel during battle the Ark of the Covenant. Israelites should never have taken it into battle. They were treating uh, God's throne as a kind of good luck charm, but they take it into battle. And because they were not being faithful to God, God allowed them to lose the battle. But then when the Philistines steal this beautiful uh, box overlaid with gold, and uh, it's got these angels on the top, and they take it as a war prize, and they set it in the temple of their god, Dagon. Do do anyone remember this story? You can read this in, I think it's in Samuel. And the next morning when they come out and check, oh, is the ark still there? You know what had happened? Dagon had fallen down face first, their idol, Their lifeless idol had fallen down face first before the Ark of the Covenant. It was God's little way of saying, your God's not real. The God of the Israelites is real. So they they set him back up. Maybe they got the nails out. They tied him down. Don't want this to happen again. The next morning they come out, Dagon's fallen over again face first in front of the Ark of the Covenant. This time his head fell off and his hands broke off. You see how symbolic that is that God graciously speaking to the Philistines saying, don't you realize Dagon's not real? He can't think for you. He can't teach you anything. He has no real hands to affect anything for you. But the God of Israel is the true God. Idols are lifeless. Look down at verse 14. Everyone is senseless and without knowledge. Every goldsmith is shamed by his idols. The images he makes are a fraud. They have no breath in them. But in comparison, God is a living and powerful God. Notice how Jeremiah tells us this in verse 6. No one is like you, Lord. You are great and your name is mighty in power. Notice verse 10. God made the earth by his power. He founded the world by his wisdom. Stretched out. Do you see how God is active He does have hands. He does have a mind. He can think. He can act. He can make things happen. Then verse 13. When he thunders, the waters and the heavens roar. He makes clouds rise from the ends of the earth. He sends lightning with the the rain and brings out the wind from his storehouses. God is the true and living God. This is our God. In comparison to the idols who are lifeless, God is alive Next, idols produce anxiety. Well, why would that be? I mean, if you can shape your own God, why would you ever need to be afraid of it? Well, the problem was there was so much superstition. You see it there in verse, in verse 2. 
Do not learn the ways of the nations or be terrified by signs in the heavens. You see, when, when there's thunder and lightning, if your God is the God who made thunder and lightning, we have nothing to fear. But if you make up your own God and you don't know where thunder and lightning has come from, and there's all this superstition, you see these things and you become afraid. Verse 5 says, do not fear them. They can do no harm. They can do and not do any good. But, and yet it's so true that idols produce anxiety. By the way, this is one of the ways we can detect whether we have idols in our life. Is when we find ourselves stressed out and anxious about certain things in our life. Sometimes we get worried and stressed out about money. We get worried and stressed out about our job or getting a better job. Even things, and, and I realize these things are not necessarily bad. Often they're good things, but maybe we get stressed out and, and anxious about finding someone, finding that special someone in our lives. And the danger, of course, is that the reason we get so anxious about it is because it's becoming ultimate to us. God isn't satisfying anymore. He's not enough for us. We want more. We need more. And it creates anxiety in our hearts. Idols produce anxiety. Notice God deserves reverence. Verse 6, no one is like you, Lord. You are great and your name is mighty in power. Who should not fear you, king of the nations? This is your due. Here's Jeremiah saying, here's God saying, if you understand who I am. I'm the only reason you have life and existence. I'm the only reason there is a world and a universe. God is the one who made it all, so he is the one who deserves our... This is a healthy fear. Who should not fear you? It's really fascinating in the Bible that the same word is used for those negative kinds of fears, those things that we're afraid of. The same word is used for that good kind of fear where Scripture says to us, fear God. It's the very same word. And scripture also tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's first base. The first attitude, the first response we need to have for God, if we're going to make progress in our spiritual lives, if we're going to follow him, be obedient to him, have a successful human life, it begins with fearing God, recognizing him. Look again there at verse, verse 6. No one is like you, Lord. You know what that means? That means that God is holy. This is why we say that God is holy, holy, holy. It means distinct, different, unique from anyone or anything else. God alone is the one who is worthy of this deep reverence. Three or four times, three times in this passage, we find Jeremiah writing that idols are worthless. Look there in, in three, verse 3. The practices of the people are worthless. And of course, he's about to describe idolatry. Then you can see it again in verse 8. They are all senseless and foolish. They are taught by worthless wooden idols. And then in verse 15, they are worthless. The objects of mockery, the word that's used here in each case, is like a puff of breath. That's what Jeremiah is describing. This is what idols are like. Just a little puff of breath. It's there and it's gone. It's, there's nothing to it. There is no substance to it. It's meaningless. It is useless. It is worthless. And yet God is worthy. I've often said, I'm sure you 
I hope you, you remember me saying this, how uh, there is this clear link between the idea of worth and the idea of worship. We worship what we deem to have worth. That is why all of us are worshipers, even if we don't worship the God that Jeremiah is describing here. Even if you call yourself an atheist, you have been created to see things as worthy. And you pursue those things with your life. It's why you get out of bed in the morning. But of course, we understand as those who believe in God, and if we uh, see and read his word, we find that he and he alone is the, the one of ultimate worth. We just read those verses, no one like you, Lord. He's king of the nations. He is due our fear. Look again at verse 10. The Lord is the true God, the living God, the eternal king. Verse 16 He who is the portion of Jacob is not like these, for he is the maker of all things, including Israel, the people of his inheritance. The Lord Almighty is his name. God is of ultimate worth. This is where it can be so convicting for us to begin to examine our own lives, and it's where we might potentially find idols in our lives. When we compare the things that we deem as truly worthy, and we're going to talk in a moment how we might test that, but so often there are things in our life that are of greater worth to us than God. And it's so easy to determine that. What do I spend my money on? What do I spend my time on? Why do I get out of bed in the morning? Is it because God is of ultimate worth and I want to live my life for him? Or is it because I found some cheap alternative that is truly an idol in my life? Idols are worthless. God is worthy. Then we find that idols are a lie. Don't you love my voice today? Doesn't it just sound serious today? I hope so. I'm going to take this home and use it on my kids later, I think. Idols are a lie. Notice verse 8, they are all senseless and foolish, taught by worthless wooden idols. Imagine that. He's already explained to us they have no breath, they have no mind, they have no true value, they're absolutely worthless. But if you submit your life to an idol and say, you're what I worship, then you are submitting your, your whole life to something that's completely meaningless. That's why scripture and other places say that people who worship idols become like idols. And what was the idol? Worthless, nothing, useless. That's what we become if we worship an idol because idols are a lie. They have no truth in them. They have nothing to teach us that's of any value. It's just foolishness. Notice verse 14. Everyone is senseless and without knowledge. Every goldsmith is shamed by his idols. The images he makes are a fraud. What a powerful way to say it. False gods are a fraud, and yet God is true. Jeremiah says it in verse 10, the Lord is the true God. We can remember what Jesus would say centuries later when he came as God in the flesh and said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. If you're looking for meaning in your life, you're looking to understand what is life about and what is the purpose of life, life, look no further than to God himself 
who is in himself truth, which is why he's given us his word. God is a God of truth. There's true information he wants us to know, and so he's given us the scriptures so we can know him and know what is true. Idols bring shame and loss. We've just read it in verse 14. Everyone is senseless and without knowledge. Every goldsmith is shamed by his idols. These idols are going to perish, verse 15. They're worthless, objects of mockery. When when their judgment comes, they will perish, gone. Not eternal like our God. They bring shame and loss. Not so God. Perhaps one of the most astounding statements in all the passage is found here at the start of verse 16. And the question here in this comparison is simply, well, what do you get? What do you get if you worship an idol? What do you get out of it? What's your benefit? Jeremiah says, nothing. Less than nothing. In comparison, what do we get when we fear God? When we believe in God? When we turn our allegiance away from idols and to him, what do we get? And Jeremiah says, he who is the portion of Jacob is not like these. For he is the maker of all things, including Israel, the people of his inheritance. You know what this means? When God speaks of himself as the portion of Jacob, do you know what that means? It means that he has given himself to Jacob, to Israel. It means that he has offered himself to them as their possession. Portion here is like an inheritance. It's like the property that you own. It's what you have. God would call himself the portion of his people. When we are worshipers of God, God says, I'm yours. And in this verse, we see that the beautiful duality of this, that God is both the portion of Jacob. In other words, that his people own him. He's theirs. But then we find that they are his inheritance. That means that we are his That's what God offered to his people, and it's why he was so angry. It's why he brought judgment on his people when he had offered himself, and he described their idolatry as adultery, described himself as their husband who'd given himself to save them, to rescue them, to make them his own, and they went out and slept with the neighbors. Idols bring shame and loss, but God offers himself So do we have any idols in our lives? We've already said it. None of us, I don't think, have ever carved. By the way, there are still people in the world today who practice a kind of religion that's based on these types of idols, Buddhism being an example. Uh, We had, I might have shared this story, we had a neighbor uh, who moved in right beside us in London. The first thing they did is they put a shelf outside their front door and they put some, I think they were fake fruits on on that shelf. These were offerings to their God. One occasion I got to go in and talk to this man and uh, actually had the chance to share a little bit about our faith and about Christ with him. And as I did so, I was sitting under Buddha. He was up on the wall above my head. There's still people who practice this type of religion. They need Jesus. But let us not think that we are above this. Because everyone who has sinned against God essentially has said to him, I don't need you as my God. 
And everyone who has rejected God and rebelled against God and sinned against God ultimately has said, I'd like an alternative. And so as we fall into sin, every one of us has fallen into sin. We've rejected God. We've chosen to go our own way. And behind that or beyond those choices of rebellion against God are choices of false worship. So I share this simple idolatry test with you and with myself to see whether there might be things that we can identify even today, yes, even here in the church. Those of us who say we follow Jesus, is it possible that we're still clinging to to idols in our lives? So four things, four tests that we can ask ourselves to consider whether we have idolatry in our lives. And here's the first thing. It's the beauty test. Or you could maybe say, as I've used the expression already today, the ultimate test. What is ultimate to you and to me? What is it that's truly beautiful to us? What is it that attracts our attention? That thing that we pursue, that we want. Is it God? Is he the ultimate for us? Is he the thing of highest beauty? That we just want to pursue him, we want more of him. We abandon everything else so we can have more of him. That's what Paul described in his life in Philippians 3. But for some of us, we have to be honest and say, no, actually, there's something I've been pursuing far more than God in my life. God hasn't had all of my heart. He hasn't had all of my my life, my time. I've been pursuing other dreams, other things that have been ultimate to me. I I want to make money. I want to be a successful business person. I don't have time to serve in the church. I don't have time to serve God. I'm pursuing my dreams. I want to be rich. I want to have a big house. I want to have a nice car. There's other forms of beauty too. That's why so many have fallen into the sin of pornography. This fleeting physical human beauty which is so much less than the beauty of God and yet for those fleeting moments we say, no, no, this is what's truly beautiful to me. This is what I want to see. It's the beauty test. What attracts me? Then we have the value test. What gets my money and my time? It's really the simplest way to find out what is worthy to us. What do we deem as having worth? Do you know that we all, as we live our human lives, we are all living appraisals, all of us. Do you know what appraisal is? I assume everyone knows what that is. It's like when the bank says, well, we need to know how much your house is worth. So we send in an appraiser to find out how much is your house worth. Can we give you that line of credit or not? And all of us are living our lives in such a way that we are appraising things. And as we look at each other's life, it becomes very evident to those in our circles who see us, who know how we live and what we live for, as to what we deem to truly have worth. Is it God? What gets my money? What gets my time? It's the value test. Then there's the identity test. What gives me my identity? What is it that makes me who I am? And how do I want people to recognize me? All of us at different stages of life can fall into different types of identity crisis. It can be a 19-year-old guy, and it's my pickup truck. 
That's the thing that's going to define me. That's what's going to identify me. My pickup truck and my boots. My ball cap. Sorry if I, I hit close to home probably for some of you. <laughs> Wallenstein. Or you're a 28-year-old mom and what really identifies you is your kids. Your whole life is your kids and you want people to see you as, as a good mom and they want to see you and, and they want to see your kids being well cared for and it becomes your identity, your job, your all of these things. You see how these things can become the thing that we want this to be the thing that defines me. Our culture has taught us that now we create our own identity. What's your sexuality? What's your gender? That's, it's your choice. You can create your own identity. Scripture says, no, your identity is in God the one who created you, it's in Christ, the one who saved you. That's where our identity is found. One more. It's the coping test. How do I cope with suffering? How do I cope when there's hard stuff in my life? And what are the things that I revert to as those things that bring me comfort, that get me through I remember talking with a, a man who had been very genuinely saved and yet struggled with smoking and he, he just desperately wanted to kick it. He wanted to overcome his smoking. But the problem for him was that, I mean, he struggled with anxiety and every time anxiety came into his heart, he had, he had, he had fallen into this lifelong rut of saying, I need a cigarette. I feel stressed. I need a cigarette. I got to drive in a snowstorm. I need a cigarette. It was a kind of coping mechanism that was an alternative to God. I don't need God in my stress. I need a cigarette. Or I need alcohol. Or I need a relationship. What is it that causes you, that allows you, what is it that you look to to cope when life gets hard? God says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. You see how this idolatry test exposes the idolatry even for those of us who say we are followers of Christ. May God expose these things. May we turn our hearts from them as we sang earlier. Cast down these idols. Turn to God who we've seen in this chapter in a number of names and expressions. He is king of the nations. He is the true God. He is the living God. He's the eternal king and he is the portion of Jacob. He is the maker of all things and he is the Lord Almighty, which is going to be one of the names we study in a few weeks. This is our God. This is the one who is worthy of our worship and our lives. Does he have us? The truth is, of course, that all of us, and maybe we even feel exposed today, as, as I so easily can, to consider these things. How could God ever take me back? When I've been like his people, I, I, I've been like Israel, who he described as the adulterous wife, who went and slept with the neighbor. I've been that person. I, I've, I've been someone who's worshipped false gods. I've made other things ultimate in my life can God take me back and the answer is yes 
He answered that question even with Adam and Eve after they sinned against him from the very first sin and the very first sinners. God has been making a way to bring us back so that he can be our portion and we can be his portion. And how has he done that? He's done it through Jesus. God in the flesh. God coming and yeah, he can speak. God coming with real hands that can touch and heal. But I wonder if you noticed some of the descriptions that we found here about idols and their makers and what they do to their idols. And I just found some really bizarre parallels that I just want to share with you when we think about idols versus Christ and what Jesus did for us. Jeremiah says the idol maker cuts down a tree, verse 3. And it reminds me of Jesus, who we know was put to death. They hung him on a tree. And we saw in verse 3 how they fastened the idol down, verse 4, sorry, they fastened the idol down with hammer and nails. Well, that's exactly what they did to Jesus. Put him to death by nailing him to the cross. We read in verse 5 how these idols are like a scarecrow. And I couldn't help but think about a scarecrow and what is a scarecrow and how do you make a scarecrow and you make this cross-shaped frame and you nail your scarecrow to it, you fasten him up there. And that's what they did with Jesus. He was like a scarecrow. Scarecrow is supposed to scare the birds out of your garden. And the Romans made Jesus a scarecrow to try and scare the rest of the Jews into obedience. Then we read in verse 9 that the idol makers dress up their idols with purple. Well, that's exactly what they did to Jesus. They put a purple robe on him. Isn't it amazing that Jesus, as Scripture tells us, became sin for us? That even in this very fundamental sin of idolatry, rebelling against God, that when Jesus went to the cross, he took all of that on himself. Scripture says he became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God in him. Brothers and sisters, should we not worship a God like this who is so great and so worthy but on top of all of who he is that he would stoop so low to rescue us from our sin and our idolatry? We have a few extra minutes this morning and I want us to really sing songs that would acknowledge who God is. We're going to start with a song uh, my girls are going to sing for you and uh, if you've heard of it maybe you can join us at the end and we're going to sing a couple more songs after. Um, let's really lift our hearts. As you listen to this first song may the Lord just and, and pray ask God to speak to your heart about perhaps the idols that need to be confessed in your own life. Lord, may we go from here with this truth on our hearts. Show us how great you are. We thank you all for coming today. Hope that you spend some of your day thinking about and maybe confessing to the Lord some of the idols that you've built in your own life. 
That's what I'll be doing. And then remembering how great a God we have, that he still loves us and that he came so low to be near to us. Bless you. Love one another well and have a great day.